The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. The Manchin-Schumer permitting bill would vastly expand the authority of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, over the electric grid. In particular, it would allow FERC to put climate goals ahead of electric reliability and affordability. Under current laws, utilities are usually obliged to connect electric power producers to the grid. However, the Manchin-Schumer bill would create a procedure whereby FERC would apply to the Secretary of Energy, quote, to designate any electric transmission facility proposed to be constructed or modified to be necessary in the national interest, unquote. Once the secretary decides to designate a transmission line as necessary in the national interest, FERC can then command that the transmission line be built. Jay, who would pay the cost of the construction of thousands of miles of high voltage transmission lines between remote wind and solar power plants and the urban areas that use the power? Well, the, all the citizens of the United States, it's basically socializing entirely electricity. It's, it's one of the most outrageous bills I've ever seen. Uh, I think we have a chance of defeating it, but uh, we'll know more about that after you uh, introduce our guest, who is extremely expert on this piece of legislation. So uh, go ahead, Tom, and introduce Myron. Yeah, sure. Myron Ebel is director of the Competitive Enterprise Institute Center for Energy and Environment, which is one of the most effective advocates for free market environmentalism. He also chairs the Cooler Heads Coalition, an ad hoc coalition of over two dozen nonprofit groups that question global warming alarmism and oppose energy rationing policies. CEI and the Cooler Heads Coalition led the successful decade-long fight to defeat cap-and-trade legislation and more recently led the effort to convince President Trump to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. And we know that Myron is effective because here's what CNN said about Myron, Jay. They said, Myron, they credited him with having, quote, as much influence shaping Trump's decision as any single individual and, quote, might have helped change the political and environmental direction of the U.S. That's great. When you know that you only get flack when you're over the target. Eh? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Myron led the Trump Transitions Team Agency Action Team for the Environmental Protection Agency in 2016 and 2017. On a personal note, Myron grew up on a cattle ranch in Baker County in Eastern Oregon. He earned degrees at Colorado College and the London School of Economics and did graduate work at UCSD and at Cambridge University in philosophy, history, and political theory. So welcome to the show, Myron. 
Thanks for having me, Tom and Jay. Well, Myron, we are so excited about having you and uh, getting to the bottom of one of the worst pieces of legislation I've ever seen. My optimism for the midterm election on November 8th uh, makes me feel that uh, nothing draconian is going to happen in the near future. But I am just wondering why uh, Joe Manchin from uh, the coal state of West Virginia would combine with the most liberal senator of them all, Chuck Schumer, uh, in a piece of legislation that can only hurt uh, the state of West Virginia and the coal industry and really the whole nation. Uh, it's pretty obvious that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing, constantly moving side to side, sometimes pleasing the Republicans as a pivotal vote for the Democrats. But uh, at the bottom, uh, I find him very honestly uh, despicable. Why do you think that he would do this, basically rubbing the nose of the citizens of West Virginia in this piece of legislation? Uh, well, the first question you've asked me, Jay, I don't have the answer to, but uh, let me put it in context. Remember, the Democrats have had several huge spending bills, and one of them was called Build Back Better. And this Joe Manchin uh, senator from West Virginia played games with both sides for months on this, whether he was going to agree to spend, I forget the number, 1.9 trillion more dollars on various things, including climate. And at some point last uh, spring, he said, well, early last summer, he said, well, this is dead. I'm not going to do it. And then over the course of the summer, he kept negotiating with uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, and then they came to a deal. And it's, uh, you know, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which passed the Congress in uh, early August. And that, instead of $1.9 trillion or whatever it was, was only $370 billion or something like that. So it's a lot smaller, right? Uh, but but it's, all, it's all on climate. All the spending is on uh, uh, subsidies for each kind of uh, a favored, politically favored energy wind energy, solar energy, nuclear power, carbon capture and storage, a, a whole bunch of other stuff, electric vehicles. Uh, and so that bill was part of the deal with Schumer. But the other part was that Manchin got an agreement that they would do a permitting reform bill because one of the problems with building infrastructure, particularly energy infrastructure in this country, is that it takes forever to get it through the environmental permitting process. So when, when I say forever, I mean 10, 20, 30 years. So who's going to put up billions of dollars to build something like or start a new mine for a big mine or uh, a big energy project if, if it's going to take forever to get it through permitting? So that was what the Manchin bill was supposed to be about. But uh, Senator Manchin didn't pay attention to what was in it. it all he really wanted was to, to get permitted a pipeline in West Virginia to Virginia so that gas producers in, in West Virginia could sell their natural gas. So that was in the bill. But then there were these other awful provisions, including this, this one on high voltage transmission lines. 
Well, it doesn't surprise me. I've never thought of him as the uh, sharpest knife in the drawer, so to speak. But uh, how do you add a bill like this to the continuing resolution? The, the, the Congress has to keep going. So they always have a continuing resolution to keep it moving. So is that kind of a trick to uh, add a draconian piece of legislation that uh, works not to the benefit of the public to tag it on in hopes that the continuing resolution will get passed and then a terrible bill like this will get passed along with it? Well, uh, uh, the short story is that the uh, majority in the Senate can bring a bill to the floor, the majority leader, and he can try to attach it to another bill if he wants to. Now, in this case, it was the so-called continuing resolution to keep funding the government because the Congress hasn't done its job uh, to uh, pass appropriations bills. And the new fiscal year starts on October 1st. And here we were in late September and the appropriate bills hadn't been passed. And so we'll just have a, a resolution to continue government spending at the level it's currently at until we can uh, pass some, some appropriations bills later. So they do this virtually every year now. So you could attach it, you could attach this permitting bill to the continuing resolution, you could attach it to all kinds of other things. But in the Senate, it takes 60 votes to do that. And so the problem that Senator Manchin had was that he had some left-wing Democrats who were the, the preservation environmental groups were saying, hey, no, there's some bad stuff in here. We didn't get everything we wanted. There's too much oil and gas in here and we don't want any more pipelines. And so they were gonna vote against people like Senator Sanders and then the Republicans were looking at it and saying, hey, there's no real permitting reform in here. This is just, uh, this is all hot air and, and smoke and mirrors. And so he couldn't get the 60 votes he needed. There were 41, at least 41 votes that were gonna vote no out of the 100. So he had to pull the bill and the con continuing resolution was passed, which funds the government to December 16th, that is after the election. And when Congress comes back, and this is before the new guys get there after the, this is before they're sworn in, this is the old Congress, they're going to try this all again. So uh, we have not defeated this. We've just stopped it for a time. And uh, we'll, we'll have another fight in this in the so-called lame duck session. Well, the scariest thing about the bill, as uh, Tom referred to at the beginning, was increasing the power of the uh, Federal Energy Regulatory uh, Commission. And that really is scary. Uh, I've been writing recently uh, about the deep state, and I don't think there's a deep state. I think it's right on the surface. <laughs> and what it is, is every bureaucracy within the federal government taking the reins of all legislation, passing rule after rule that are not written into legislation. So that scares me more than, uh, than anything. How do you, uh, you feel if the bill goes through, we're not going to be able to uh, stop FERC from uh, doing whatever they damn please? <laughs> well, let me let me say this. Uh, FERC, which maybe most people have never heard of, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, is a very obscure agency, but it's one of those independent agencies. It's not exactly run by the president. He, The president nominates people to be commissioners, and then the commissioners act uh, as uh, according to the 
the laws as they see fit. They don't have to take direction from whoever is president. So currently, and it has to be bipartisan. There has to be uh, at least two of each party. And then the if the deciding vote is whoever gets to appoint it. So right now there are three Democrats and two Republicans on board. And they have authority over several things. And it, it just depends on which law they were given this authority. They have authority over natural gas pipelines and LNG terminals, liquid natural gas. And then they have some authority over siting and authorizing uh, high voltage transmission lines. And so the current commission wants to put every, because it's a democratic majority, they want to put climate into every decision. And so, uh, for example, I heard Commissioner James Danley today, and he's one of the Republicans on the commission. He said today that we had, we had a, an LNG terminal that the permit had been given, but the company had to come back and get an approval because they wanted to expand the parking lot for their employees because they're going to run it 24 hours a day. And it took the commission fought that for over a year before they granted it. So because the Democrats, the Democratic majority were saying, yeah, but we, we don't want, you know, more LNG. That's bad. It's bad for the climate. So uh, this this whole uh, very obscure agency would be under the Mansion Schumer bill would be given enormous power, as as Tom mentioned, to compel the construction of high voltage transmission lines to connect, for example, wind turbine factories, wind installations in a very windy part of the country, let's say Wyoming, and connect it to where the customers are in Southern California. So right now there is there are connectors, but not adequate for all this new wind power. So they'd have to build a new transmission line to Southern California over hundreds and hundreds of miles of mountains and desert. And FERC could now compel the companies to build it. Hmm. Wow. I mean, that's, uh, that's totally outrageous. Now they're an energy organization and would appear they're putting climate issues ahead of the cost of electricity for the customers that are served. How do they get away with that? Well, that's a good question, Jay. I mean, it's a great question. FERC in its charter, is, it's concerned with uh, reliability and affordability, reliable electricity and keeping the cost down. And those are the things that they have to consider when they make decisions. The Manchin-Schumer bill would say, well, in, in these uh, transmission lines that are designated by the Secretary of Energy as a, being of strategic national importance, you can consider a lot of other things. Well, right now the commission is considering climate whenever they make their permitting decisions, but they don't actually have any statutory authority to do that. They're just making it up as they go along. And I think they're open to legal challenge. But if this bill passes, that it will allow them to put climate up there ahead of everything else. So it says that one of the factors that they consider is, is this, would this transmission line uh, contribute to the national energy policy? Well, the national energy policy of the Biden administration is climate, climate, climate. 
reduce emissions, cut energy use, cut production, make people poorer. That's the whole agenda. So that would that would give FERC the statutory, the legal authority that they don't have now to do that. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't sound to me that it uh, passes the new Supreme Court decision that West Virginia sued EPA over the manner in which EPA was regulating coal power plants in West Virginia. And the Supreme Court said, if uh, things are not written in the legislation, the various, well, in this case, EPA could not make up rules that weren't mentioned. And most people feel that that uh, ruling by the Supreme Court really goes to every bureaucracy. It would seem to me that FERC would come under that and that the, the things that FERC wants to do aren't quite what the mandate that you mentioned earlier, uh, which were FERC's responsibility. How does, would FERC get out from under that new Supreme Court ruling that really takes a tremendous amount of power away from unelected officials. Yes, well, I think you raise the key point. The Supreme Court is now calling this this issue or this uh, principle the major questions doctrine, and they're saying, look, regulatory authority uh, uh, agencies have a lot of authority, but you know it is limited by what Congress has given them, and therefore. If you want to do something new and big, like take on climate, and Congress hasn't mentioned it, well, that's exceeding your authority. So the major questions doctrine certainly applies to FERC and what they're doing now in letting climate control some of their decisions over pipelines and transmission lines. But the Manchin-Schumer bill would actually give them that authority. So that would be the end of, of, uh, of the application of the major questions doctrine. It was, it's, the Manchin-Schumer bill says clearly that in considering whether a transmission line is of uh, national importance, you have this eight-factor test. And I won't go through all the eight factors, but one of them is just a catch-all for anything you want to do, which is, is it in the interests of our national energy policy, or does it advance our national energy policy? Well, if our national energy policy was to produce a lot more, more coal, oil, and natural gas, uh, we might like it. Uh, but since the, the national energy policy is uh, to reduce emissions and uh, restrict production of coal, oil, and natural gas, raise energy prices, force people to use less, uh, you know, I, I think we don't like it. And so I think FERC has, um, uh, we, we have to stop this bill because it would really put climate, it could put climate in charge of every All right, well, it, it, it clearly is a horrible bill. I think most of our listeners are aware uh, that the Biden administration is trying to uh, destroy us as the number one energy country in the world. They uh, are totally responsible for increased prices at the gas pump. Uh, we're definitely going to throw them out of the House of Representatives on November 8th. Nobody would predict they could hold on to it. We're, the, the argument is whether we uh, win a majority of, of 20 seats or 50 seats. Uh, I think that's clear. Uh, could the, let's assume, worst case, the a bill was passed in the lame duck session, which would begin, I think you said, December 14, 15, or 16. 
could the flipping of the house, could they take the bill up and have it reconsidered if it passed? And what are the chances in that 15 day period where they're still in control that it would go to the Senate and pass there? It would seem to me the chances of that are limited. Well, you know, um, the lame duck session can start immediately after the election on November 8th, and it can go up to you know, the end, of, the end of December or January 2nd or whenever the new Congress is sworn in. My experience over many decades is that lame duck sessions are generally very bad news because there are a bunch of defeated members who want to get stuff. And, and the election has passed, so nobody's in danger of being defeated in the election for a couple of years. And so uh, let's, you know, grab things. And so why, why is that a threat for this particular bill? Well, let's go back to the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act creates, uh, t- uh, extends the wind and solar subsidies. Now, remember, wind and solar power are now cheaper than any other kind of electricity, according to the the, the climate industrial complex, and yet they still have to get 10 more years of subsidies. <laughs> so so uh, let's let the problem is people have said, well, there's $190 billion of subsidies for wind and solar over 10 years. Uh, that's not so much. And look at all the good we're going to get out of it. Well, no, that's just an estimate. The fact is that anybody who can build a wind or solar facility can claim that credit, and it could be much larger than the estimate. And how could it be? Well, if the Manchin-Schumer permitting bill passes, it will allow wind and solar developers to put their facilities wherever they want, and then the federal government through FERC can compel transmission lines to be built and get consumers, the rate electric consumers would then have to pay for the cost of these incredibly expensive high voltage transmission lines. And we're talking here about trillions of dollars, not billions. So a billion is a thousand million and a trillion is a thousand billion. We're talking about huge amounts of money that would then go into, so, so there's a huge amount of money at stake in terms of the wind and solar subsidies that might become available. So there's going to be tremendous political pressure to get this passed. And I would say it's not just the lame duck session. If they fail, it'll come back in the next Congress, even if it's controlled by Republicans, because a lot of Republicans like to hand out taxpayer money to special interests. There's no question, but there are going to be two problems in the world uh, coming up this winter. We're clearly going to see a lot more blackouts in California. That is become more and more dependent on wind and solar. We're gonna see some terrible blackouts in Germany as well. So two diverse parts of the world are going to show the public that uh, wind and solar is not in their best interest. In fact, uh, it's just the opposite. I think there's a chance over the next year that all the support for wind and solar in all the bills that you've mentioned will begin to decline. What do you think about that? Well, I think your analysis is correct, Jay, in terms of public opinion and the realities of wind and solar and and how it's making our electric grid and and Europe's electric grid less reliable, uh, more expensive. It's funny, we're getting more expensive electricity, but it's much less reliable. That's that's (laughs) the 
<laughs> I guess that's the whole purpose. Uh, so, and by the way, it's not just California, it's New England is facing uh, blackouts this winter. And it's actually people, not, you know, in California, not many people are going to freeze to death if the electricity goes off. But in New England, um, it's a different matter. So I think public opinion, you're right. I think uh, the reality, the physical realities are right. But, but in terms of politics, the amount of money that is at stake here gives the, uh, the special interests, the climate industrial complex, it gives them tremendous incentive to, to do everything they can. And, and with all this money at stake, they will have a lot of power and political influence because they will spend a lot of money. So I think, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's reality versus political reality here. And I, don't, I, I wouldn't uh, want to guess uh, as to who's going to win that battle. Mm-hmm. Well, you, your organization, Tom, you have a question real quick? Yeah, sure. So did Senator Manchin simply yield to the environmentalist pressure? Because I know they just abused him royally. I mean, is that why he backed down, do you think? You know, I don't know uh, why. And uh, he's, he's an odd, uh, odd he's, he's somebody who likes to be liked. And most politicians are fall into that. So I'm not criticizing him particularly. I'm not criticizing him at all. He likes to be liked. And uh, there are two audiences where uh, that, that don't have the same tastes or uh, judgment. The people who elect him or vote for him in West Virginia, they really liked it when he was opposing the, the massive Build Back Better bill. His poll numbers kept going up as Biden's kept going down. And I think at one point, uh, uh, President Biden had a 27% approval rating in West Virginia, and Joe Manchin was up, and he'd been lower. He, he was up over 60%. Uh, so he likes to be liked by his voters, his, his fellow West Virginians, but he also likes to be liked by his fellow Democratic senators. And I, you know, I read one thing, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, he, he explained to a reporter that one of the reasons he caved, caved in on all this is that his fellow Democrats were shunning him and wouldn't talk to him in the Senate. Um, now, that sounds silly. I mean, we expect a little more from our elected officials. But on the other hand, as I say, politicians like to be liked, and he, he got tired of not being liked is one possible explanation, Tom. But but the but the kicker to that is his poll numbers have gone way down in West Virginia now. Oh yeah, that's pretty predictable. Well, yeah, you, you know, and all of our listeners know that uh, the Biden administration has come close to destroying our energy independence. And your organization, a competitive uh, environmental group, your Mario Loyola has written a report titled Unleashing America's Energy Abundance. That really interests me. Could you uh, summarize for our audience uh, what that report is about? Maybe give them an optimistic look at a sensible plan to get us back where we were. Yes. Well, Mario is my colleague here at CEI, and he's um, he served in the Trump administration at the Council on Environmental Quality in the White House, which was in charge of trying to fix up this monstrosity of environmental permitting called the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA. And so Mario is an expert on NEPA, and uh, he wrote a paper for us uh, 
in which he tried to explain, and, and he's very even-handed. He's explaining it to people on our side who want to build, you know, natural gas pipelines or more oil refineries, but also to people who want to build uh, more uh, renewable energy, that none of this is going to happen. We're not going to be able to, uh, to keep our energy infrastructure up to date and expand it quickly enough to take account of more people and more economic activity if we don't reform our environmental permitting laws, NEPA and some others. And his first point was that the Manchin-Schumer bill does nothing to really reform these laws. And then he goes through some of the things, not I don't think all, but he goes through some of the things that would actually be necessary to improve our environmental permitting process so that we can start building stuff in this country again without having 10 years of uh, environmental impact statements and considering them and then 10 years of litigation. You know, other countries do the same thing, but they do it in two or three years. We do it in two or three decades. And Mario points out that there are ways to, to reform our system, but we, we don't have it in the Manchin-Schumer bill. All right, well, Myron, we're up against our, uh, our break right now, and uh, we'll uh, go to commercial, and we'll be back in a few minutes with a lot more challenging questions uh, that really will tell everybody what a phenomenal job your organization uh, is doing on behalf of all of our listeners. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a made-in-America climate plan a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure, a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com cold and flu season is here wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats well now there is and it's a povidone iodine based antiviral nasal spray called cofix rx you might even say it's just what the doctor ordered to reduce your chance of getting hurt you wear a safety belt when you're driving to limit sun damage you wear sunscreen on the beach cofix rx is just like that it's an additional layer of protection it's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, 
it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. So we're back with Myron Ebel, Director of the Competitive Enterprise Institute Center for Energy and Environment. Myron played a major role in various activities to do with the Trump administration. For example, Myron led the Trump presidential transition team for the Environmental Protection Agency in 2016 and 2017. So Myron, could you tell us about that transition? What actually went on? It sounds pretty interesting. Uh, well, it was very interesting. And I, I've never served in the federal government. I worked for a member of Congress for a, a bit, but I've never worked in the federal government. So it was a learning experience for me to lead the EPA team, which is, you know, the, the belly of the, the regulatory beast. President Trump, as you will recall, was uh, not only was not was he not a conventional president, he wasn't a conventional candidate. So most presidential campaigns, most candidates have, they have a policy shop and they have people coming up with policies and they'll have committees of experts, you know, Washington insiders and lawyers to write white papers on what the next administration will do. And they typically try to fudge all the issues so that the the candidate really isn't committed to very much when he becomes president. President Trump didn't really have a policy operation until very late in the day, very late in the campaign. He started giving policy speeches where he made promises. He promised to get rid of the so-called clean power plant. He promised to get rid of the waters of the U.S. rule. He promised to get out of the Paris Climate Treaty. And so when I was asked to join the transition, I, you know, I had some questions and the answer always was that your purpose is to figure out how the president can keep all of his promises that he made about the environmental, environmental protection agency. We don't want a whole lot of policy stuff. We just want you to tell us what he, what has to be done when he becomes president at the EPA to keep these promises because he wants to keep his promises. And so I think you'll, you may recall that whenever the president kept one of his promises and he had a press conference to sign something or announce something, he would, he would remind voters that, and Americans that, Hey, you know, I'm not like those other people who've been president who, who say promise a lot of things and then forget about it. Here's something I promised and today I've done it. And this is the, you know, X time I've done it in the last month. So uh, it was, it was a very interesting experience. And uh, you know, I, the president kept most of his promises. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it had to be very exciting and very uh, satisfying. I want to go back to something you mentioned uh, earlier in the program that the state of Wyoming under this, uh, Mansion Schumer bill could uh, support the building of wind and solar that they have no need for, and then ship it uh, by a pipeline to California, uh, six to six hundred, eight hundred miles away. The the ultimate uh, absurdity, and then the companies building the wind turbines and the solar farms would pay very little of the cost. You and I uh, would be paying a lot of that cost. This is the height of absurdity. Could you uh, clear up where perhaps I'm wrong? 
No, you. That, that's a good example, Jay. Uh, look, most people live in urban centers, uh, and most of them actually on the coasts. So you got a lot of people in Southern California. You got people in the Bay Area on the East Coast. You got a lot of people all along the Strip from Florida up to to Boston. But most of the wind resources in this country are in places where not many people live, like Wyoming. And even if there was a, a very windy spot in in you know Greater Los Angeles, people wouldn't want a lot of wind turbines built there, right? They would oppose it. So. Uh, the, the question always is, if we're going to have all this wind power and all this solar power, because again, the Nevada desert and Arizona are very sunny places. And if you're going to have a lot of solar panels, you're going to want to put them there. But, uh, you know, we're Virginia, for example, or Florida, even Florida is not a particularly sunny place. So there's people one place and there's resource, energy resources another. So uh, whereas we build power plants close to where people live, we're going to build wind and solar facilities a long ways away from where people live. And that means we have to build these incredibly expensive and intrusive high voltage transmission lines. So we already have these all across the country, but we'll have to build a lot more of them. Now, by the way, we also have pipelines all across the country and they don't bother anybody because they're, they're buried. And once they're built, Everybody forgets about them. But if you have a high, our ranch in Eastern Oregon, we have a high voltage transmission line running through it from the dams on the Snake River that Idaho Power built to connect with Oregon. So I'm, I'm very familiar with high voltage transmission lines. They're very intrusive. They're huge. It, they may be less of a problem than having an interstate freeway through your land, uh, which we also have actually, but you know, they cost a lot. And so this, so, so your question is, are we, who's gonna pay for this? Well, the wind and solar developers will never be able to pay for it. They'll never be able to make enough money. So what do you do? You have this federal commission, FERC say, well, the benefits of this transmission line are so great in terms of cl the climate benefits of reducing emissions that the customers, the electric rate payers, should pay for it. So not only are the wind and solar people getting the federal subsidy, the taxpayer subsidy for building wind and solar, now the electric customer is gonna pay for the, the, the privilege of getting that power from say Wyoming, uh, where there's a very windy strip in Wyoming, very, very windy, uh, to seven or 800 miles away in California. So you know, not only are people going to be paying, uh, taxpayers paying extra for the wind and solar, now it'll go up, your electric rates will go up as well. So it's, it's just, it's monstrous. Mm -hmm. It's got to be one yeah, of the worst, one of the worst bills I've ever seen. But there's another issue I read about making it even worse. I understand the government could have the right to seize land by eminent domain to put those power lines through. Is that, is that true? Yes, well, uh, um, government at all levels has the power of eminent domain or condemnation to condemn land, to take the land or to, to in this case, condemn a right of way through the land. And typically for transmission lines, there's an involved process where the states who want to build the transmission line, and this is true uh, of, of oil and gas pipelines too, the state agencies will work with the companies that are building the line and they will try to work 
with landowners to buy rights of way, purchase them, and or if there's some real obstacles to maybe go around it, find another route. And uh, the federal government really only steps in when things re reach an impasse and there is just no way to proceed without the federal government exercising eminent domain. Now, states often do it as well for their uh, rights of way. They'll, they'll go ahead and do it. So this bill, the Manchin-Schumer bill, would give FERC the ability to start eminent domain proceedings, condemnation proceedings for rights of way against private landowners, farmers, ranchers, and, and so on from day one. They could just say, okay, this is, we've identified this as a transmission line of national importance and therefore we're just gonna condemn rights of way starting today. So it, it, again, it's a terrible threat to, to rural America. Tom, you had a question. So I get the impression, Myron, that the average American probably doesn't know about this. And so <laughs> what should the average American do when they learn about this? Should they be writing their congressman? What should they do? Well, uh, I think, yes. I, as we started out by talking a little bit about this very obscure agency, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. I mean, who, who's ever heard of it? Who's, who's ever thought that they would have to care about it? What I would encourage your listeners to do is to contact your members of Congress, both House members and Senate members, and don't wait till next year, because as we talked about, this could come up right after the election in the so-called lame duck session. Tell them that you that one, yes, permitting reform, environmental permitting reform is a good idea. We need it because it's very difficult to build things in this country anymore without waiting 10, 20, or 30 years. But say we don't want this giveaway to renewable energy at FERC, F-E-R-C. That's really all you need to say. Oppose the FERC part of any permitting bill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we usually, our total audience has grown to 50,000 if uh, any reasonable percentage of them would take the time to write a simple letter describing exactly what you just said, uh, I think we can raise the awareness of an awful lot of uh, congressional people around the country. Again, I, I still hold myself optimistic that if more and more of what we've talked about is exposed in the lame duck session of Congress, that uh, enough of the public will get up in arms and uh, it won't have an easy way to go. And the eminent domain part is just a disaster. I mean, if you were to write a major article in, uh, and get it published in all the newspapers, for people to understand that Wyoming, with the help of eminent domain, could move six to 800 miles into California, with their wind power and the public would have to pay for it, I think we could raise an awful big uh, number of people against it. So I'm, it's a disaster and I think you are right in painting it as is and I suppose uh, taking a negative view about the chance of getting passed so that people will take action. But I think that will happen, so I'm, I'm really quite uh, optimistic about yeah. it not getting through. 
Yeah, Jay, uh, can I can I just say one thing? I, I think your your action item is just right, except for one thing. The Congress uh, has insulated itself from uh, public input from their constituents, telling them what they think in various ways, starting back with. Remember the anthrax scare in the Senate office building and they had to wow. stop the, well, uh, and then we've had the shutdown because of the plague. Um, so it's not easy to contact your member of Congress and probably the worst way to do it is writing a letter. Probably the second worst way is an email. A better way is to call, but the best way by far is not to call the Washington DC office here in the Capitol of your Senator or member of Congress, but to call one of his district or state offices and talk to a real person who answers the phone rather than getting an answering machine saying, thank you for calling Senator X, uh, please leave a, if, you, if you're calling about an issue, please leave a message now or something, you know, where they never pay attention to it. The same thing with emails. But the district and state offices, every member has offices in his constituency. These, there are real people there who live in the, you know, live there and they actually care about the people. And if you can get a hold of that office, they don't get that many calls mm -hmm. and or emails. If you get their email address, email the person in the district office. Well, how do, how do you get the, uh, where do you get the phone number of, of local offices for your uh, senators or congressmen? Well, just search on your computer for who your representative or senators are. And if you don't know who that is, you know, just type in uh, members of Congress for, you know, uh, Kansas. And uh, then look at the map and figure out who's, you've got two senators, they represent the whole state. And then you've got one representative and you've got to figure out whether where he is and whether you live in his district. And then search for that person's name. So it's Representative Jay Lair in uh, Coolidge, Kansas. And um, the website will pop up for that member of Congress and it will have a list of where his offices are. There will be one here in, in DC and then there will be several in his district or state. And find out which is the closest to you. Like if there isn't one in Coolidge, maybe there's one in Wichita and uh, call that call that number. And that number, you will get a real person and uh, they will have to listen to you and they will be interested to listen to you because that's their job is being the eyes and ears of, of the member in, in the district. So that is a sensational piece of advice and really takes far less time than typing a letter or in a yeah, email yeah. and going to the mailbox. That's really yeah. the easiest way. And Wow, just talking to people anywhere is so exciting in this yeah, day now, and there's age. One, there's one more thing, Jay. When you call a member of Congress or a member of a state legislature or a city council or a county commission, they're interested to know what your opinion is on an issue and you tell them. It's very important to tell them your name and your contact information, whether it's a phone number or an email address or a, a house address name and contact information, and then to say, I would like to be informed as to how Representative Jay Lair, my, my member, 
has voted on this issue. Mm-hmm. So, so don't just say, I'd like to know what he thinks about it or whether he's for or against it. That's fine. You want to say that too, but you want to say, I want it here after the vote, how he voted, because there's a lot of flim flam in politics and uh, politicians like to be liked. And so they try not to tell you when they've disappointed you. So you want to make sure you know whether they've disappointed you or not. That would assume they're calling uh, after a vote's been taken. Right no, no, now, no, 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 no. Call them and say, uh, I, here's how I want, I, I, want, I want you to vote against this. It's terrible. And I want you to tell me whether you have voted against it or not. So once you voted, Got I it. want to know. And if Got you it. don't hear from them, put, put a note on your calendar or whatever. Call back and say, I oh, want to yeah. know. Awesome. Because th- there's a lot of lack of, of credibility uh, in, in the political process. There's a lack of, of integrity. And uh, voters, uh, citizens of this country, need to hold their elected officials responsible in a way that when they're running for office, they're not responsible because they can say anything to any, you know, Bill Clinton was classic. He could just go into any audience in the country and he could just smell what they wanted to hear. He could just sense it, you know, and he would just tell them whatever they wanted to hear. That's why everybody loved him. Yeah. One thing we did in Canada, which maybe will work in the U.S., maybe you can tell me, is that when we've contacted a politician, we would then get on a radio talk show or we would write a letter to the editor for a newspaper saying, I think this is the case. And I've told my senator, I've told my MP what I think, you know, and actually name his name or her name and then say, and I'll give feedback later as to what they actually do. Yeah, no, that's great. Of course, it's a lot more work and you got to have the context to do that. But yeah, here's a piece of information that I'll bet you can give our audience. I have heard that uh, a congressional office that gets a letter, an email or a phone call, which is best, that one call really uh, stands for a a much larger number of people in the constituency that would feel the same way. Do you have a handle on what that multiplier might be? Well, you know, I think it varies uh, a lot, Jay, uh, because we have organized pressure groups in this country. There are some on the on the conservative side, but there are more on the uh, uh, left side, and particularly environmental pressure groups that mount, you know, postcard campaigns, for example, or email campaigns, and they just swamp an office with things. And you know, it turns out usually that most of the people who uh, send these postcards in don't live in the district or the state. They, they're all, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to affect a member in Illinois but they live, or, or Indiana, but they live in New York City. So, um, I, I, you know, I think one, one thing I would say about my, my suggestion to call the district or the state office rather than the Washington, D.C. office is, they actually aren't used to getting very many phone calls. So if they get five phone calls in a week, they put it down on the list and they, they, the boss gets, gets it, right? He, he said, wow, we're really getting a lot of calls about this because uh, most of the effort is, is focused on Washington, not on the district offices. You have really said a mouthful, uh, Myron. I think that uh, a very significant number of our listeners will uh, take it to heart and do it because you really made the case of 
how much can be accomplished uh, by doing this. So I'm, I'm really very excited about it. I think we have time for one last issue I'd like you to cover uh, that I've been following for uh, many, many years. And that's the fact that uh, your organization, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, for years have been doing surveys of the cost of uh, various rules that the government puts out every year, which is instructive and, and shocking. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you do that. <laughs> I wish I knew. Uh, we have this uh, uh, just a uh, genius here at CEI named Wayne Cruz, who has dedicated a very large part of his effort over many decades to producing annually uh, a volume, which you could find online at CEI.org, called 10,000 Commandments, a snapshot of the regulatory state. And every year he tries to update what what is what is the status of the of the regulatory octopus that you know grows every year and takes over? Well, it didn't grow during the Trump administration, but leaving that aside, it didn't grow during the Reagan administration. But that's a long time ago now. So the regulatory octopus keeps growing, and Wayne is the guy who keeps track of it in this book, uh, which you can get online called Ten Thousand Commandments. Now. You mentioned the cost. It's very hard to get the cost of what regulations are, what what damage they do to the economy. Wayne has some numbers in there, but um, they're not they're not uh, comprehensive or, or filled out. The numbers I think are less important than actual just showing the growth of regulation at the various agencies and how it just you know it just keeps keeps expanding. That you know. As I say, the only way to, to, to downsize the, the, the bureaucracy, the regulatory state, is to cut their budgets so that there are fewer regulators. Less, uh, fewer regulators means less regulation. And I think Wayne would agree with that. And uh, so that's his effort. It's really worth looking at. It's, it's a little depressing. I try not to look at it very often. But Well, in case our listeners are not aware, the one thing that the House of Representatives does control is the budget. Uh, the government can't spend money that is not approved by the House. So the fact that we clearly will flip the House on November 8th is going to make it very difficult for this tyrannical administration to pass more rules that cost money. Because those things are not likely to get through the House if we uh, you know, really have a, a large majority, which I expect we will. So. Uh, what Wayne is doing in that report uh, is very important. I've certainly read numbers that it, uh, the cost of useless regulation is uh, somewhere between 4000 and 10000 a family. And I, I think that's probably accurate. So uh, I want to leave our listeners with a very positive feeling that uh, while there's a lot of bad things this house can do before between now and uh, when the new house is seated early in January, there's light at the end of the tunnel. It's, it's going to be the, the beginning of a, of a turning point, the change. Uh, I'm not using the term cautiously optimistic. I'm very optimistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not going to get involved in this, uh, Jay. I don't, I don't like to predict uh, the future. I don't, people keep calling me and, uh, 
uh, reporters keep asking me, is the price of oil going to go up or down? Well, if I knew that, I would, you know, I'd be wealthy. Um, and uh, if I if I could predict who's going to control the next Congress or be the next president, I'd, I'd be, you know, uh, a highly paid consultant, which I'm not. So um, I'm not going to get involved in your predictions. We'll see. We'll see how. It, let's hope. Let's hope it turns out uh, that I'm right for the best. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In, in our last minute, I wanted to ask you a question. I'm sure some listeners are probably keen to know. I named how the enviros are attacking you, the environmentalists. And I'll just read a couple of quotes because I want to find out, you know, does this affect you? The Business Insider commented, Myron Ebel may be enemy number one to the current climate change community. And Rolling Stone named you as one of the six top misleaders on global warming. Greenpeace even had you in their field guide to climate criminals. So can you walk down the street without being attacked? I mean, or is it dangerous? What's going on there? Uh Tom, you know, when I was, when it leaked uh, that I was, had been appointed as the head of the Trump transition team for the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, actually there were uh, uh, protests mounted not only in Washington, D.C. and I think Boston and a couple of European cities, but they marched from Georgetown University, which is west of downtown, to downtown where our offices at CEI are, and they had a rally in front of my office. So yeah, and I've gotten death threats. And, and I, But you know, a lot of people have gotten negative publicity and uh, t told how much uh, they're disliked or hated. And a lot of people get death threats. So, you know, most of it isn't serious. Occasionally it is. You have to learn to take uh, criticism and uh, unpopularity along with it if you want to achieve anything in, uh, in the public policy or political world because it's a very highly polarized thing. And the final thing I'll say is, look, the left, and this is true of uh, all across the political spectrum, but the left in particular uh, wants to personalize issues and demonize the people who are opposing them. And so I'm, I've been a subject to that, but I think both of you have too. And, uh, you know, we learned to live with it. And, um, you know, I'd rather debate the facts and the reality and the, and the arguments, but the left often can't win on the facts or the arguments. So they have to try to destroy the, the people that are opposing them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're super glad that you do stand up to that because we need more people. Like Winston Churchill said, you've got enemies. Good. That means you must have stood for something in your life. <laughs> so thanks very much for being on our show, Myron. Thank you, Tom and Jay. Okay. Well, our guest today has been Myron Ebel, Director of the Competitive Enterprise Institute Center for Energy and Environment. So this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story. Thank you.